All right. We are in one of the most fantastic passages of Scripture that God has given us. It's John chapter 17. So let's go there and look at it. I did want to tell you while I was on vacation, I played golf twice. And uh, one of the times I played with a father and a son. Son was probably 13. The father's a UPS driver, drives one of the big semis for UPS. And he asked, what do I do for a living? I told him I'm a pastor. And he said, that's great. My dad is a deacon. And I said, that's fantastic. What church? And it was so-and-so Catholic church. And so this man was deeply involved in Catholicism. And so as we're, we're playing, we, it was real slow that day, so we had a lot of time to talk. And um, politics came up and the gay marriage decision. He told me a story of his son who was 13. There were two girls on the playground kissing. And he said, now, first of all, when I was in school, wasn't nobody kissing on the campus. You know what I mean? At least they weren't supposed to be. And so he said, the boy said, I don't agree with that. That's wrong. Guess who got in trouble? Really interesting. And so we were talking about that. He got called into the office and got in trouble for saying that. Well, Dad went down there, and this guy was a very large, scary man. When he told me what he said to the principal, I was thinking that principal was probably just saying, yes, sir. It was a, it was a really interesting thing how this boy was being forced to believe evil. He was being required to agree with evil. It was an interesting thing. So we talked about that, and I talked to him about what the Bible said about that. And, and so he kept asking me Bible questions as we were going. We got done, and I said, you know, we've been talking about the Bible, but the most important thing is whether or not you're going to go to heaven. And I went through the gospel, and I asked him, would you like to receive Jesus Christ right now? And I said, no, I'm not talking about receiving a wafer. I was real clear with him on it. And he said, yes, I would. And so I led him in, in a sinner's prayer and explained that it's not abracadabra, magic potion stuff that you have to believe in your heart. And as he was praying out loud, his son started praying out loud with him. And so these guys received Christ. Isn't that a blessing? Amen. And I was so thankful they have to have the opportunity to just communicate God's Word to someone. And I think that in our age, one of the hardest things to do is just to have a conversation with someone. And the Bible is still the power of God. Isn't that right? It's the power of God to them that believe. And we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And I just wanted to tell you that to encourage you that if you'll just take the opportunities to give people the gospel. As we were done, he said, no, I don't know if I'm ready to give up being a Catholic. It's interesting, right? Because that's his family identity. And I said, I'll tell you what you need to do. Read John and Romans. Pray that God the Father, God the, the Son, God the Holy Spirit will speak to you through the Scriptures and will reveal the truth of the Word of God to you. And I'm just excited. I don't know what's going to happen with them, but I just think God's going to do something great in their lives through the Word of God. That's what the Bible does. Here in Revelation chapter 17, and go there with me if you're not there yet. But in Re Revelation, John chapter 17. We were in Revelation in Sunday school for a little while. In John chapter 17, 
this is the Lord's Prayer. You know, what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer is the disciples' prayer. Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is where we see Jesus Christ praying to His Father. And if one thing that's interesting in this portion of Scripture, if you have a red-letter Bible, and I don't, but if you have a red-letter Bible, much of it is in red. And it's Jesus Christ's actual, His personal words. All the Bible is God's Word. But these are where Jesus Christ is speaking. And we have spent quite a bit of time in this passage, but I didn't want to get past this. Look with me at verse 14, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so I think that this passage is becoming more and more real to us, isn't it? If you believe God's word, the world's going to hate you. So I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Can I ask you a question? Are you of the world? Are you of the world? Man, it's tough not to be. You know, you want to fit in. You want to wear clothes that are in style, and you want to, you know, whatever. Um, But the, the question is, do you have God's word? And are you living God's word in such a way that you recognize and realize that you're not of this world? You're not of this world. Look at the next verse. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And that is the evil system of the world, but also Satan. And then verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You might want to take some time. We're not going to do it today, but there are four places in the Gospel of John that identify what truth is. Identify what truth is. John 14, 6, Jesus Christ is the truth. John 17, uh, the Word is truth. John the Baptist was a witness to the truth, and that is Jesus Christ. And then when you have the truth, it makes you free in John 8, 32. Go through and look at how, how truth is represented in the Gospel of John. Then look at what the Bible says. Verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. We have been sent into the world with a mission, and that's called the work of the Lord. And the work of the Lord is the job of making disciples. You begin making a disciple by, if you look at verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. That means you live who who, who God the Father is, who Jesus Christ is in the world, and you make that plain. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. So when you're a disciple, you keep God's word. We know from Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Revelation, Jesus said, I know thy works. And then he said, thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. If you don't keep His Word, you'll deny His name. If you keep His Word, you won't deny His name. You're going to keep His Word and manifest His name, according to John 17, 6. Verse 7, Now they have known that all things whatsoever Thou hast given me are of Thee. And that's how we receive the Word. As it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13, Paul said, They received the word, not as the words of men, but as they are in truth, the word of God, which worketh in them that believe. And so they received the words, not as the words of men. When when Jesus would speak, they knew that these were the words 
of God. And is that where you are? Do you recognize that the, when you read the Bible, that it's not a religious exercise, but that you are reading and keeping God's words? And we see that again in verse 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So what is your job? We looked at that last week. The work of the Lord is living your faith out in the world, speaking the word of God, giving, believing, receiving, keeping the words of God, and then giving those to someone else and living in such a way that you realize, hey, I've got some supernatural information that I need to share. That's the work of the Lord. Now, look at verse um, 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And so that's you, that's me. When Jesus Christ is praying here, He's praying for everyone that would believe on Him through the words of the disciples. Anybody here believe the Romans road? Anybody here receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? That was through their word. So Jesus Christ is praying for you right here. Now, this is the bulk of the message. This is the heart of the message now, beginning in verse 21. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to know what it means to be one in You. Lord, help us to understand the significance, the importance of that. Help us to know what it means to be, have been given glory by You. In Jesus' name, Amen. There's a way. God gave us a gift so that we could be one. Now, how many of you recognize that there are a few divisions in Christianity. Why is that? Why are there divisions in Christianity? Why? Because we're not one. Does that make sense? The reason there are more than one is because we're not... Isn't it amazing the truth you get at Grace Baptist Church? But it's a, it's a very important truth. Then why are we not one? I think I've told you about uh, being at a funeral here in Sydney over down at Cromus and um, the head of the ministerial association telling me that they've missed me at the meetings. And I said, well, thank you. And um, he said, why don't you come? And I showed him from the Bible why I don't come because there are people that don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe that the gospel is simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says to mark them and avoid them, not come together and pray that God will bless their ministry. And so I showed him those verses. And um, he said, I know those verses, but I also know that Jesus prayed that we would be one. And so I said to him, well, I agree with that, but, but you have to finish the verse as I and my Father are one. And I said, you know that the Father and the Son don't disagree about the virgin birth. They don't disagree about the death, burial, and resurrection. They don't disagree about the nature and members of the church. They don't disagree about eternal security. They don't disagree about those things. They agree about those things. And he started yelling at me at the funeral home. All of a sudden, his oneness was gone. His love and his willingness and acceptance, it was gone. And listen, all I did was quote Scripture. All I did was quote Scripture. Why, are, why is Christianity not one? Because we're not one. We don't agree. And it's very interesting. He didn't get mad at my doctrine. He got mad when I told him what the Bible says. 
And all of a sudden, I had God's word, and he hated me. I think it was, Bob's come up a lot in the last couple of weeks. Someone said to Bob one time, oh, I know your pastor. All he does is ask questions and quote scripture. It's very interesting, and when you give the Bible to people, people who love the Bible, what are they going to do? They're going to receive it, and they're going to grow. How many of you have changed something you believed because you saw it in the Word of God? You, you saw that what you believed was wrong, and you, you changed because you saw it in the Bible. Why? Because you love the Bible. And what happens is you become one with all of those who love the Word of God. Now, God gave us a gift so that we could have that oneness. And it's interesting, I've never heard this preached on in my entire life. I'm 52 years old, and I've never one time heard this gift preached on. And it's right here, the next verse. Let's look at it. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he gave us something. In that verse, what did he give us so that we could be one? It's almost hard to say out loud, isn't it? He gave us His glory. Now, this causes a problem. Put a marker here in John 17 and go to Isaiah chapter 42. Maybe this is why I've never heard it preached on. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another neither my praise to graven images. Now we have a problem. God said He won't give His glory to another. But in John 17, God says that what He gave us for oneness, Jesus says, I gave my glory. So what in the world are we going to do with this? How many of you think that we have a little conundrum here? What are we going to do with it? It's very interesting. And what we're about to see is one of the greatest lessons on biblical oneness that you'll ever see. This, it's really, really cool. Back to John chapter 17, verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are. So in order to understand how glory is used here in verse 22, we've got to look at how else it's used in the chapter. Look at verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. So Jesus Christ is praying for his own glorification. Do you see that? Father, glorify thou me. And what did that mean? What did it mean? Give me your glory on the cross. That's what's getting ready to happen. He's going to reveal the glory of God from the cross. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, how many of you want that glory? That's not what we think of when we think of His glory, is it? Let's read on. Look at verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. How did He glorify the Father on the earth. He finished the work that God had given him to do. What was that work? The work of making disciples and teaching us how to make disciples. So he had finished that work and that had brought glory to God. Look at verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I have. Is that what it says? 
had with thee before the world was. So what glory... Jesus doesn't have his glory anymore, at least right, right here. So what glory is he giving us? It's not the glory of his deity because Jesus Christ laid aside the glory of his deity when he became a man. Right? And he wants us to see that glory again. Look at verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. So what is he saying? Now the Father is answering the request of verse 5. Restore now to me the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That is the glory that is revealed in Revelation chapter 20. You all have seen it before, but there might be someone here who hasn't. So keep your place in John 17, and let's look at that glory. Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. When Jesus Christ's glory is revealed, the glory of His righteousness, the glory of His deity, no sin can stand in His presence. So the Bible says that one day the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. How many of you have heard of the Big Bang? You've heard of the Big Bang? It's true, it just comes at the end instead of the beginning. All right, there's going to be, everything is going to end, and the thing that's going to end it is Jesus stops upholding everything with the word of his power, and he reveals his glory, he reveals his face. That's the glory of God. It's the glory of ultimate purity and holiness and righteousness. And isn't it wonderful? Jesus wants us to see that. Wouldn't you think he'd just show it to them? He couldn't. It would kill them. So now they have to be in a perfect place of righteousness in the new heaven in order to be able to see that glory and to experience that glory. That's the glory that Jesus Christ gave up. Now go back to John 17. And so let's read this section again, beginning in verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Now I want you to think about something. When you got saved, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12. You teenagers, you're not turning. I see some of you guys in the front row not turning. There'll be a caning after the service if you're not careful. 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 13. How many of you young people stayed up too late last night? Hmm. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. So what happens when you get saved? You are placed by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Isn't that awesome? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wait a minute. I just said that we're placed in Christ. The verse I just quoted said Christ is in me. How does that work? I have no idea. But go back to John 17. 
we're starting to see something about this oneness. John 17, look at verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. So Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. Do you see that? We are in Christ and Christ is in us. That is the kind of oneness that we have. So the first oneness that Jesus Christ prays for is the oneness of us being in Christ. Now, it's interesting. Why is he praying for that in John chapter 17 when he had been walking with his disciples for three and a half years? Because look at John chapter 14. Look at verse 17. Uh, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth, what's it say? With you, and is in you. So what is Jesus Christ praying for in John 17? Something that hasn't happened yet. When did this indwelling Holy Spirit happen? Pentecost. That's what happened at Pentecost. God sent the Holy Spirit in a different role than he, had, than he had had in this world. Now he would dwell in us. So the oneness that Jesus Christ is praying for began to be fulfilled and answered when the Holy Spirit dwelt the believers at Pentecost. Now every person that gets saved is filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to wait for a period of time and speak in tongues in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Look at uh, Acts chapter 19. There was a transition time where the disciples of John, those who had been baptized by John, they, they were looking for the Messiah, and the Messiah had been offered, and they had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But Israel didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, so he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and there's a different message that will be preached now. Not that your Messiah is here, but now they're going to preach the death, burial, and resurrection. All right? Let's make sure that we get that. Hold your place in Acts 19. Go to Luke 24. <laughs> the ADD preacher. Luke 24, y'all keep distracting me, verse 44. So this is after the resurrection of Jesus, after the Emmaus road. So Luke 24, verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. I love that next word. I hope you have it marked. Then... Opened either understanding that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. So this is a new commission. The old commission was Matthew chapter 10. Go there. Matthew chapter 10. Much confusion about this in churches. Verse 5, Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. 
But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely give. That was the commission that he gave the disciples. Is that the commission that we have? Right? Aaron and Eric Edwards would be out of a job. They are morticians. Why? Because we just heal the sick, raise the dead. That's not our commission. Our commission is to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 24. Isn't that right? Now, that, that was a transition that took place before the death, burial, and resurrection. They're saying, kingdom of heaven is here. The Messiah is here. After the death, burial, and resurrection, they're saying, Jesus Christ is the Savior. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead. Believe that. Receive Him, and you'll be saved. Two different messages. Is that right? Two different messages. But now in the book of Acts, you have people who know that message and who don't know the message. So now go to Acts 19, verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Now what you're going to find is these are not disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of John. And he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not heard so we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now, I don't know if there's a saved person anywhere who doesn't know that there's a Holy Spirit. Because what the Bible teaches us is that our salvation is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us, the Holy Spirit draws us, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and then the Holy Spirit changes us. And then we work in the power of the Holy Spirit because when we work in the power of our flesh, we can't do anything good. The only good that we can do is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that right? John's disciples didn't know anything about that. They didn't know anything about it. And Paul knows that and asks this question. Verse 3, And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? What teaching did you agree with when you were baptized? How many recognize that's the question he's asking? And what is their answer? And they said, Unto the baptism of Jesus Christ the Savior. But what is it? It's John's baptism. John's baptism, according to Mark chapter 1 and verse 3, was the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now you understand why the church of Christ says you've got to be baptized to be saved. That was for the Jews. That was acknowledging that the Messiah was here. That's what that was. It doesn't have anything to do with your eternal salvation. How do I know that? Look at the next verse. Then Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. Isn't it amazing? Aren't you amazed at my deep biblical scholarship? It's just the words. It's right there. It's the baptism of repentance. Then look at what it says. Then Paul, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on the Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? What's it say? Interesting, isn't it? What does Christ mean? Messiah, the anointed one. Are we looking for the Messiah? No, we're looking for the return of our Savior. 
The Jews were looking for the Messiah. And that's what these disciples of John had been baptized to, the Messiah. Then look at what the Bible says. Then John, or then Paul, uh verse 4, Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Ghost. What's going on in this setting? You have this transition time from the teaching that took place in the Old Testament to the teaching that's now taking place after with this new working of the Holy Spirit where He comes and indwells people. That's what's going on in this context. Now, go back with me to John chapter 17. So now verse 21, "...that they may all be one, as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in Us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And the glory which Thou gavest Me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one." Now, I asked the question a little while ago. Now, let me just reiterate where we have been. What we are saying is the beginning of this was answered. The first part of this request was answered when the baptism of the Holy Spirit came. When we as believers were baptized into the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in us. That's the first part. But this doctrinal oneness, this oneness of belief, why is it that all Christians don't believe the same thing? Why is that? Is there more than one Bible? Uh, I watched you guys try to answer that question. No, there's not more than one Bible. There are lots of books that call themselves Bibles. Right? And there are lots of interpretations of those Bibles. But the Bible says this about interpretation. Interpretation belongs to God. Right? So I'm not allowed to interpret the Bible. I have to take what God has said and understand what He meant. And here's how I know what He meant. By what He said. All right? So then why are there so many different um, religions or different forms of Christianity? It's very simple, folks. It's because, look at verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are because we do not live in His glory. What glory is He talking about? Now remember, the glory of His deity, He laid aside the glory of His deity when He came to earth. Does anybody, do, you, do you agree with that? Look at verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. That's what He laid aside. To understand John chapter 17... And the oneness, we need to know what glory is being spoken of. And we get the definition of that in Philippians chapters 1 and 2. So go, go to Philippians, where the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, defines this for us. All right, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Do you see that? 
He made himself of no reputation. There are six steps of humiliation that Jesus Christ takes, and they're given to us in Philippians chapter 2. So the first thing that he does is he made himself of no reputation. And you know what that was? That's when he laid aside his glory. That's when he laid aside his glory. Have you ever seen a, a, an athlete or a movie star? They get pulled over by the police. And what do they say? Don't you know who I am? How many of you have seen some of them do that? It doesn't usually work very well for them. Yeah, you're the person that's about to get a ticket. That's who you are. It, it's, it's really funny. Jesus Christ could have said that. He did say it, didn't he? Remember what he said in John chapter 16? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? It's very interesting. So the first step of humiliation that he took was, it says here, uh, he made himself of no reputation. That's where he laid aside his glory. The second is he took upon him the form of a servant. Remember, he was in the form of God. But he took on the form of a servant. That's humiliation. Then it says, um, and was made in the likeness of men. Can you imagine what it's like for God to become a man? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Then look at what it says. And being found in fashion as a man. That's the next step of humiliation. If you saw Jesus, you would have thought, oh, it's just a guy. If he was standing here in front of you, it wouldn't mean anything to you. He's found in fashion as a man. He had laid his glory aside. And then he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Those are the six steps of humiliation that Jesus Christ took. So what do you think it means when Jesus Christ says he gave us his glory? It's the glory of a servant. It's the glory of a servant. So what are we supposed to do? What did Jesus do? He's in the form of God. He was somebody who made himself nobody. And what we have to do is we have to stop thinking about how important we are and what I think and what I want to do and what I want the church to be and what I want God to do. And we have to step aside and say, God, what do you want? What do you want for me? And then we have to be willing to lay aside our own glory. It is amazing how often we want to get the credit. We want to be known. We want to be seen. That's what Facebook is about. That's what American Idol is about. That's, it's this culture that we all want to be famous. It, and we're just not. And then he humbled himself and became obedient. So let's define how this works. Look with me at verse, chapter 1 and verse 27. How are we going to be one? How are we going to be one? Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else I be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in, now look at this, one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What is the glory that He gave us? It is the glory of the mind of Christ and what is the mind of Christ? When we studied Philippians, I couldn't believe it. I pulled out the notes for that. It was 2005 when I taught this. I can't believe that. 2005. But what we learned was the mind of Christ is humility of spirit and unity of thought and purpose. 
So why are there so many different Christian denominations? Why is there so much division among Christians? Because we don't have humility of spirit and we don't have one mind. Is that right? And then what happens is then we're not striving together for the faith of the gospel. Look at verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sakes. It is amazing how many people are afraid to stand up for Christ because they might lose a job. They might lose something. Well, that's the humility, isn't it? That's the humility. That's the glory. So let me just go over a couple of things with you. This oneness, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. This is the theme verse for our discipleship training. So we, in, at Grace Baptist Church, we do one-on-one discipleship. And so I train people to train you. So then, so let's say that uh, Nick disciples Mike, when Mike is done being discipled by Nick, Mike comes to me and I teach him how to disciple somebody else. And the theme for that training is 1 Corinthians 1.10. Let's read that out loud together. All right, ready? Go ahead. Do you think that's a good definition of oneness? Amen? Let's try that again. Do you think that's a good definition of oneness? How is that? Do you all speak the same thing? Now, there are many reasons why we don't all speak the same thing. And the first one is we don't all have the same words. It's interesting in a lot of the mega churches. Have you ever noticed that in the mega churches they don't do what we do and go verse by verse by verse? And compare the words of Scripture. How many of you have noticed that? Why? Because there's 25 different translations of the Bible sitting out there. How can they study the Bible? What is, what is the next word in this verse? And 25 different words come out. It, is it possible to speak the same thing when you have different words? I'm going to start over. <laughs> is it possible to speak the same thing when you have different words. Now, I'll tell you the people that get really hung up on this, they're the people that enjoy the multiplicity of Bible translations because there's no authority then. There is no authority. And so people speak all different things. It's a huge problem in Christianity. The second reason that we don't have oneness and that we don't speak the same thing is we have doctrines that are not based on the Bible. Okay, so let's run through some of them. Why do the Methodists disagree with the Baptists? Well, the Baptists are identified by what are called distinctives. They are doctrines that make us different from the other Christian denominations. But we find those doctrines in the pages of Scripture. There is no human founder of the Baptist faith. So you say, who is the founder of the Methodists? Well, it's John Wesley. And they practiced his methods, Wesley's methods. That's where that comes from. There's a founder of the Lutheran church. Who do you think that is? 
Luther. There's a founder of the Presbyterian Church, John Calvin, John Knox. They have, they have human founders. Is that right? And their followers were followers of their teaching. A Baptist holds to this, and it's by the Baptist acrostic. The B, the Bible is our sole authority. So if you ask, what do Baptists believe? Well, we believe the New Testament. The New Testament, understanding what a New Testament church is, that's, that's what our constitution is. That's what we believe. The Bible is our sole authority. And you say, well, everybody would say that. They do say that, but when you compare their theology to the Bible, now you have a problem. Show me purgatory. Show me Mary worship. Show me work salvation. Show me the sacraments. Show me those things. Where are they? Are they in here? No, 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 no. And so they don't agree with the Bible. In Wesleyanism, that's the faith that underlies Nazarenes, Pentecostals, um, uh, and Methodists. It's the holiness faith. You have what's called sinless perfectionism, absolute or complete sanctification. And what they do is they take the passages in 1 John that talk about the new man and apply those to the old man. Well, you can't do that because Romans chapter 7 makes it very clear that the spirit, the new man that's in me, is perfect and sinless and holy. The old man, that is my flesh, is only sinful and will be until I die. Is that right? And that, that tension is revealed in 1 John chapter 5, in, for, or in 1 John, because it says in chapter 1 and verse 9, if any man confesses sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us, give, forgive him his sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it says, if any man say he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. And then it says, if any man abide in Christ, he does not sin. Well, wait a minute. If I say I don't have sin, I'm a liar. But if I abide in Christ, I don't have sin. So what Wesley did with that was he believed that you could find a way to become sinless. And where he messed up was he didn't look at the words of Scripture. The new man and the old man. The new nature and the old nature. So why is there, why are we not one with the Methodists on that subject? Why? Because we believe the words of the Bible... And the Methodists don't. Now, my mother's a Methodist. I can't believe you would say that. I bet your mom's great. But the faith that she is holding to does not agree with the Scriptures. The Presbyterian faith, those who would hold to the teachings of Reformed theology and John Calvin, they believe that the church replaced Israel. But Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, that thou hast them which say... They are Jews and are not. And what did Jesus say about that? He said, I hate them. How about that? It's wild. We're not Jews. We're the church. And if you're a Jewish believer, you're no longer Jewish. You're in Christ. We're one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor barbarian. We're one in Christ. Is that right? It's very important that we get that. And so the, the oneness that ought to be in Christianity is not there. If you're an Arab and you get saved, you're no longer an Ishmaelite. You are a Christian. 
Right? And so there's oneness. You can have Jews and Arabs in the same church. Praise God. That's the oneness that He wants us to have. Why don't we have that oneness? Because we do not keep His words. It's very interesting. So all of these different religions and all of these different faiths, the only reason they exist is because there is not a humility of spirit and submission to the Word of God. A Baptist, Bible is our sole authority. This is it. The autonomy of the local church. Nowhere in the Bible do you have a person that's over all the churches. You don't have that. And so we believe in the autonomy, the self-government of the local church. Who is the head of the church according to the book of Colossians? Jesus Christ. No human leader of the church. Jesus Christ is the leader of the autonomous local church. Then the P, the priesthood of the believer. The Bible says that we are kings and priests and will rule with Him. The Bible says that we are a royal priesthood. Is that what the Bible says? When that veil was written to when Jesus Christ died, that Levitical priesthood was over. It's over. So why don't, why don't you call me a priest? I'm a pastor. You're just as much a priest as I am. You can take other people to the throne of God. You have access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ if you're saved. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the priesthood of the believer. Well, then why do Anglicans have priests? Because they came out of the Catholic Church, but all the Catholic Church didn't come out of them. They have a form of the Levitical priesthood. Someone said, what's the difference between an Anglican and a Catholic? Well, Anglican priests marry. That's about it anymore. They've come back together again. So why are they different than us? Because our authority doesn't come from the church fathers. Our authority comes from the Word of God, the priesthood of the believer. Then there are two offices in the church. There's the pastor and the deacon. A pastor is identified by three words in the Bible, bishop, pastor, and elder. Bishop, that's the overseer. That means he is in charge of overseeing the ministry. Everything that's done, the pastor is responsible for that. doesn't mean he does everything, praise God. But he's the overseer. He's the administrator of it. The pastor, that is the person who feeds the sheep and protects the sheep. So this morning, I'm trying to feed you and protect you. Feed you from the Word of God and protect you from false doctrine. That's what my job is. And then the elder, that is someone who knows God and knows God's Word. He hasn't mastered the Word of God. That's impossible. But he's not a novice. He knows the Bible. And he's a man. And he's a man. Very simple. The qualifications for the pastor are in the scriptures and then the deacon. The job of the deacon is not a hierarchy over the ministry. The job of the deacon is to help the pastor with the business of the work, the business of the ministry, to free the pastor up to minister the word of God and to pray. And what is the business of the church? Well, it, it is the finances, but it's also meeting the needs of the people. I can't make every hospital visit. I can't care for every need. I, I just can't do it and teach the Word of God. So that's why God raised up deacons in the Bible to help the pastor. Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the whole Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. For it is not reason that we should leave the Word of God in prayer to serve tables. All right, so pastor and deacon, there are two offices. And then the, the I is individual soul liberty. You can't make somebody believe something. 
You can't make them. And so that leads to other doctrines. The Bible says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. You can't make anybody believe in anything. And the simple fact is that everybody is going to give an account before God. Every individual is a free moral agent before God. And they are going to give an account. I can't give an account for you. You can't give an account for me. So my job is to tell you what God has said. And then it's between you and God what you do with it. I'm not going to come and knock on your door and see what's going on in your house. Anybody here want to say amen to that? I'm writing down names. That's what John Calvin did. There in Geneva, John Calvin had groups of men that would go into houses and see how many jars of jelly you had. If you had too much jelly, you'd get put in jail. uh, Girls over a certain age couldn't wear satin and girls under a certain age couldn't wear velvet. You weren't allowed to go ice skating. You wouldn't believe all the stuff. If your hair was designed, was, was, was too high, they'd put you in jail. Can you imagine that? That's the great John Calvin. It's all your Presbyterian friends who love Calvinism. That's the crazy man that they're following. And that's only the beginning of it. He had a 15-year-old girl beheaded because she disobeyed her mom. He was a wicked, wicked man. He was an evil man. Why did he do those things? Because he thought it was his job to rule God's people. It's not my job to rule God, rule you. It's my job to pastor you. That is completely different. That is, I teach God's word to you, and then you do with it what you will, but you will be under the judgment of God if you disobey it. Because once truth is seen, it can't be unseen. Why is there not oneness? Because people disagree with the word of God. The S is a saved church membership, a saved church membership. Why would a church vote gay marriage into the church? Because they're lost. Saved people would not do that. Amen? Why is there so much trouble? So why are there lost people in those churches? If you become a member of that church when you're baptized as a baby, then salvation is not a prerequisite to church membership. And yet, Acts chapter 2 is very clear. They heard the word, they believed the word, then they were baptized, and they were added unto the church. They, They could not be baptized until they believed. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip's giving him the Bible. The eunuch said, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he said, I believe, he said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they both went down into the water and he baptized them. He wasn't going to baptize them until he made a confession of who Jesus Christ is. Salvation or baptism makes you a member of the church. You cannot be baptized, you cannot be baptized until you're saved. Now, again, if you've got a modern translation of the Bible, that verse is gone. It's not there. Um, In 1835, Adoniram Judson, his followers were trying to have his translation of the Bengali version uh, of the Bible. You know, he translated the Bible into the language of the Burmese people. It's the Bengali language. And the, the British Bible Society wouldn't print it. Because he translated the word baptize, the, the baptizo, the Greek word baptizo, as immerse in the, in the language of the people. And so then they came to the American Bible Society, and the American Bible Society wouldn't print it. And here's why. This is, I have the minutes from the meeting from 1835. I, I, I could show you in my office. Here's why they wouldn't print it. Because the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans and others would not be able to use it. 
That was the American Bible Society that said that, not the Baptists. The American Bible Society. Do you know what the word baptize means? It means to immerse, to dip in water. Why isn't it that in your King James Bible? Because the word immerse didn't mean immerse in 1611. It wasn't in an English dictionary until 1613. The word of it wasn't available to the, to the translators. But all the way back to the 1200s, the word baptize in English, it meant to dip in water. That's what the word means. It's just what it means. They wouldn't allow them to translate that. And of course, the people that wanted to diminish and undermine the text of the Bible removed that from their Greek text. What is that Greek text called? Vaticanus. Where do you think they found that text? In the Vatican. Do you think Vatican, the Vatican wants you to believe before you're baptized? No. But if you have a modern translation of the Bible, you have that Catholic understanding of doctrine in your Bible. So one of the greatest verses in the Bible on believer's baptism has been removed. Why is there no oneness in Christianity? Because they've not kept His words. John 14, 23. If you love me, keep my words, including Acts 8, 37. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Saved church membership. Then two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism and the Lord's Supper are clearly identified in Scripture. No one received the Lord's Supper until they were baptized. The Lord's Supper is a disciplinary meal. That's the nature of it. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about. Baptism is a profession. It's a public profession that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is obedience to the Lord's command. It's identification with Jesus and with the body of doctrine, with the church. And it's also submission to the Lord and submission to the local church in your life, their authority in your life. And then the last is S, separation of church and state. Because of individual soul liberty, you can't have a state church. You can't have a state church. Amen? You cannot have a state church. There's probably somebody in here that wants to have a state church. Oh, really? That you're going to go put your mom in jail if she doesn't become a Baptist? How many of you understand that's wicked? That is wicked. A man persuaded against his mind remains unpersuaded still. It's really important that you get that. So, why is there not oneness in the church? Our Baptist distinctives are completely scriptural and biblical. Why do we believe in eternal security? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have temporary life. <laughs> Why do we believe in eternal security? Because that's the words of the Bible. We agree with the words of the Bible. Why do we believe in a saved church membership? Because those are the words of the Bible. Why do we believe these things? Why is there not oneness? Because there's not humility of spirit, and there's not one mind. Why? Because we're not all speaking the same thing. Look with me at First Tim or Second Timothy chapter one. Verse thirteen, I believe we looked at this last week. Hold forth the form or hold fast the form of what's it say? Which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse chapter two, verse one. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things that thou hast heard of me, what things? Those sound words. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, you might come from a different background that does not hold to 
our position on the Word of God. I want you to wonder, I want you to ask yourself something. Can two books that say different things both be the Word of God? Which words are you supposed to keep? Oh, the Greek words. Really, which Greek words? Well, the original. Really, where are they? When a, when a church or an organization says, we believe that the Bible was inspired in the original autographs, and that ends their statement, you know what that means? They believe in nothing because they don't exist. They don't exist. Um, there was a man, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. His name's um, Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman came from a fundamentalist church, and he went to Moody Bible Institute. At Moody Bible Institute, they told him that we don't have the original autographs and the purpose of biblical criticism is to try and determine where the words are. He went to Wheaton, and at Wheaton, they told him that, that the manuscripts we have don't agree. And he went to Princeton, and he was said that there's no such... and that he was taught that there was no such thing as preservation. And so he says this in his book, if God couldn't preserve His words... Why should I believe that he had inspired them in the first place? And he went on to teach at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I believe he's at Princeton now. And he writes books that destroy the faith of Christian men and Christian ladies because he was never taught the biblical teaching on preservation. He wasn't taught it. Look at Psalm chapter 12, the 12th Psalm. In verse 6, the word of the Lord. Interesting. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. How many of you believe that? Of course, you have a modern translation that doesn't say that. It changes it to be talking about Israel, not the words of God. Why? Because the people behind them do not believe in preservation. God promised to preserve His words. You can hold them in your hand. Why is there not oneness? Because people don't want to receive the glory that Jesus Christ gave them, the glory of humiliation, the glory of submission to God and His Word, the glory of humbling, the glory of being made of no reputation, Last passage we'll look at, Revelation chapter 3. Verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength. Do you know what that means right there? You receive the glory I gave you. You have a little strength, a little strength, and has kept my word and has not denied my name. Isn't that awesome? Do you know who changes God's word? People that think they're strong enough to do it. 
Is there humility in that? No. No. The words of God. Why is there not oneness? I said that was the last verse. I've got to show you one more. Go back to John 17. Look at our text. This is the danger of preaching without notes. John 17. Verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Why doesn't the world know about Jesus? Because we are so divided that most people don't even know what the gospel is. George Barna did a survey recently, and the majority of evangelicals in America believe there's more than one way to heaven. Why? Because there's not one authority. There's not one gospel. There are many gospels out there. Remember what Paul wrote? If any man brings you another gospel, which is not another, let him be accursed, damned to hell. There's only one gospel. Why is evangelicalism confused on that? Because they don't have a Bible. They don't have an authority. They don't have a clear statement of the gospel. They don't have a clear statement of truth. They don't have the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I'm so glad that you have given it to us.